I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear brutus is not in our stars but in ourselves good luck we care about your world stay tuned This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Think about it. Right now. And that's the way it was. was, was. That's the way it is. It is. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler, a wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The world is listening. My guest is David S. Rudolph. He's a preeminent criminal defense and civil rights lawyer and former law professor at the University of North Carolina and Duke University. And he's the host of the Abuse of Power podcast and the author of this book we'll be talking about, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. David, welcome. Antonio, thank you very much, but I, I have to correct you because my wife would, would not uh, be happy to hear that I'm the host. I'm actually the co-host along with Sonia Pfeiffer, who is my law partner and spouse. Thank you for the correction. 
I was supposed to say co-host, but I guess I screwed that up. <laughs> well, no, it, it, it was totally an act of self-preservation on my part. I, I totally understand, and good catch on your part. So in this book, you state that police and prosecutorial misconduct and abuse of power has resulted in thousands of innocent people being convicted and locked up for crimes they didn't commit. Could you give us a sense of the actual numbers? Well, only by extrapolation. So let me and let me tell you what I mean by that. So we know uh, that over the last, uh, say, 30 years, there have been ballpark at the time I wrote the book, it was twenty eight hundred. Let's let's just say ballpark three thousand exonerations uh, over the last three years. So that would be you know about a thousand a year. Well, what does that represent? First of all, uh, in order to be exonerated, uh, someone who's in prison uh, needs to be able to find a lawyer uh, who is willing and able and competent uh, to represent that person generally for little or no money, uh, generally for years at a time, uh, and generally under very adverse conditions. So immediately, uh, the person's uh, ability to secure that kind of representation is severely limited. And, and thankfully, in the last, say, 20 years, as a result of Barry Sheck's uh, work with the Innocence Network and Project, uh, law schools have, have established Innocence Projects in various states and cities around the country. And so many of these cases end up being screened and worked on by law students initially. So that's the first hurdle. Uh, then if they can find a lawyer or a law student who is willing to help them, uh, then that lawyer or law student needs to be lucky enough to find evidence uh, that they can use to uh, convince a judge uh, that the person was wrongfully convicted. And oftentimes, uh, you know, these cases have dragged on for years, sometimes decades. And so evidence is lost. DNA evidence is no longer around. Uh, witnesses have died. Uh, memories have faded. Uh, and so it's, it's a difficult process and a very time consuming process for a lawyer or a law student to actually gather the evidence they need, assuming it's still available. And then, of course, if they're lucky enough to find that evidence, then they have to be fortunate enough to find a judge who is willing to listen in an impartial way uh, without any sort of bias towards finality uh, to the new evidence. Uh, and they need to be lucky enough to find a judge who understands the, the legal uh, issues involved uh, and who does not elevate the importance of finality in the criminal justice system above the importance of justice and truth and innocence. Um, and so, you know, when you put all of those hurdles together uh, and you say, well, 3,000 people have been able to overcome each and every one of those hurdles, I think it's fair to say that there's scores, hundreds of others who are in the same situation. You know, we, we haven't just been fortunate enough to find the 3,000 out, out of the millions of people uh, who uh, have been convicted, and we found the 3,000 that just happened to be innocent. No, we found 3,000, but that's a, that's a subset of a much larger number. 
And so, you know, if it's if it's uh, 25, uh, you know, people for every person who's uh, gone through that, uh, you know, what's 25 times 3000? That's uh, 75,000 people. And you can do the math from there. So we're talking about a significant, significant number of people. It may not be, you know, 10 percent of the of the prison population. I wouldn't say that. But even 1% of the prison population is a huge number in the United States. Could you talk about your early years of law school, visiting the tombs, and, and how that affected your perspective of the criminal justice system, and also some of the other things going on at that time that led you to question authority and become a criminal defense attorney? Well, uh, you know, the first piece of that is that uh, that I grew up, uh, you know, during the Vietnam War era, uh, you know, there were many, many protests against the government. Uh, Kent State was a situation where National Guardsmen in Ohio opened fire on students at Kent State University and killed four students. That sort of reverberated around college campuses uh, at the time. and then uh, when I was in law school, uh, Watergate happened, uh, and uh, the Attorney General of the United States at that point, John Mitchell, was indicted and convicted for a conspiracy to obstruct justice, you know, the highest law enforcement official in the country uh, obstructing justice. Uh, and so, you know, by the time I graduated from law school, I had a pretty healthy skepticism of the power of government and, and uh and how that power could be abused. Uh, And so I was really drawn uh, at that point to representing people who were facing the power of the government. And, you know, you mentioned my experience at the tombs. That was at the very start of my law school career. Uh, We were given, uh, you know, the students were were given a choice of where, what they wanted to uh, see as, as part of the orientation. You know, you could go to you could go to Wall Street uh, or uh, or you could go to the tombs, which was the the pretrial detention facility in New York. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly why I chose that. I can't remember at this point in time, probably because I thought it would be more interesting than Wall Street. Uh, but I remember going into that prison and it was it was and there were several women in our group who were touring the tombs. And it was it was like a Jimmy Cagney movie from the, you know, the 30s or 40s. You know, we walked in and the cells were there was like seven or eight floors of cells. It was a big open atrium. uh, And then the cells looked out on that atrium uh, and the, the inmates were all in there. uh, And when we came through, they were banging on their bars you know, and, and hooting and hollering. And, and these were these were people who hadn't been convicted of anything. They were presumed innocent. They were they they hadn't been convicted of anything at that point. They were awaiting trial. And yet I walked in there uh, and and observed this scene. And, and, you know, the only thing that flashed in my mind was that this was sort of like a human zoo. I, you know, I, it was it was no different than, than going to the Central Park Zoo and and sitting there at at the, uh, you know, the, the, the monkey and, and and ape collections and just watching. Uh, and so it, it was really sobering to me that that that's how our criminal justice system 
treated people who had not yet even been convicted of anything. Uh, and so I think that helped to reinforce uh, where I was headed uh, once I got into law school. The stories in this book revolve around cases that you worked on that involved police and prosecutorial misconduct and corruption at all levels of the criminal justice system, mainly in North Carolina. Could you describe the kind of misconduct and abuse of power you came across? And also, is this particularly unique to North Carolina? Well, um, you know, first of all, uh, I need to stress that this is not a, you know, uh, an I'm a great lawyer book by any means. Uh, you know, it, it's really designed, as you point out, uh, to illustrate the problems uh, of the criminal justice system uh, by cases I'm familiar with. Some of them I actually tried. Some of them I didn't get involved in until the person had been convicted and, and exonerated. Uh, so, you know, to answer your question, no, it's not limited to North Carolina. Uh, these sorts of things happen all over the country every day, everywhere. Uh, you know, what my experience in North Carolina is no different than my colleagues' experiences in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or all the rural places in between, you know, Oklahoma and Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, you know, you name the state, you name the locality, and I can probably find you a case or two or more where there has been an egregious abuse of power uh, by someone in a position of authority in the criminal justice system. So could you talk about the kind of misconduct and abuse of power you've come across? Yeah, and 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 it takes various forms. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's uh, the eliciting of a false confession. Uh, generally, that happens with somebody who is uh, in some way impaired, either by psychological issues or drug issues or uh, being uh, underage. Uh, or otherwise vulnerable, uh, and the police either intentionally or unintentionally uh, share uh, facts of the crime uh, and put enormous pressure on the person to make statements uh, that end up being incriminating. So that happens with fair amount of frequency. Sometimes it's uh, identification procedures uh, that are designed either intentionally or unintentionally to uh, lead the witness uh, to identify a particular person who the police believe is the actual perpetrator. Uh, sometimes it's through the use of uh, junk science, you know, uh, science that, uh, that is not really science, it's just opinions and, and experiences that police or, or other people have that they masquerade as science. Um, so there's a whole host. Uh, you know, sometimes it's the use of of uh, police uh, snitches. Uh, you know, people who uh, are professional uh, snitches who uh, make money or escape their own uh, criminal liability by cooperating with the police. Uh, so you know, as the book indicates, there are you know probably eight or ten different ways in which you see 
wrongful convictions occurring, uh, but there's a root cause to all of them. There's a common denominator uh, to all of them, uh, which is really, I think, the most important point to the book. So in recent years, we've heard a lot of stories of police abuse on the street, particularly in racist situations, but we don't normally hear about police abuse of power behind the scenes, particularly in the initial investigation of cases and those circumstances that you talk about. What is it about our criminal justice system that allows that kind of behavior to happen and perpetuate that kind of circumstance? Well, here's the basic flaw. The basic flaw is that it's populated by human beings. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, because the system is run by humans, it's subject to all of the human frailties that all of us suffer from. And in particular, uh, it suffers from confirmation bias. And let me talk about that for a minute. Every single one of us, myself, you, uh, your listeners, we all suffer from confirmation bias. It's just a psychological fact of life. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that you know, we we tend as human beings to form opinions about things based on fragments of facts uh, and our experiences. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we do this every day in life and, and it usually serves us well because it lets us reach decisions quickly and, and generally accurately. Uh, but let's put that into the place of a, of a police investigation. So the police uh, go to a scene and let's say it's a wife who's been murdered and the husband, uh, the police find out, had been having an affair. Uh, the marriage was perfectly fine. There was no, no other motive particularly. You know, the husband may even have an alibi, but he had an affair. Well, at that point, uh, confirmation bias kicks in and immediately the husband becomes the prime suspect. Uh, and maybe in most cases that's justified, but what about the cases where it's not justified? So what happens is that the police, because they formed this theory, uh, it becomes a suspect-based investigation as opposed to a fact-based investigation. And so the police, because they're suffering from confirmation bias, tend to ignore the facts that are inconsistent with their theory and tend to focus in and elevate the importance of facts that seem to be consistent with their theory. And the common uh, way that's described as tunnel vision. The police develop tunnel vision. And, you know, what happens then is that they're convinced that somebody is guilty, uh, but maybe the evidence uh, isn't there to support that. And, and they don't want this perpetrator to get away with it. So now, you know, uh, here comes the forensic expert uh, who's going to come in and he's going to testify about the blood spatter, uh, which is, you know, there's a little bit of science involved in that, you know, just physics. But, you know, you can't tell what happened by looking at blood spatter. But uh, they're going to come in and tell the whole story based on the blood spatter at the scene. Or, you know, the tire expert comes in or the tooth the expert, the dental expert or the tooth mark uh, person comes in or the handwriting person comes in. 
uh, and and all of a sudden, you know, we're creating evidence uh, to fit a theory uh, as opposed to looking for a theory that fits the evidence. And that's how these cases go off the rails. It's not because the police are corrupt. It's not because prosecutors are corrupt. Uh, it's because they're human beings uh, and they suffer from confirmation bias and they're not trained to recognize that confirmation bias or to take steps to combat it in the field. Uh, and so that's why uh, we have the kinds of wrongful convictions that we have seen over the past uh, 20 or 30 years come to light. And you say that our justice system was designed to err on the side of freeing the guilty, lest the innocent be convicted. There seems to be a prevalent bias in the public that the defendant must be guilty, otherwise they wouldn't be being prosecuted. There's no doubt about that, Tony. Absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you know, it's the old where there's smoke, there's fire. And again, uh, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases, I suppose, that turns out to be true. But the importance of the presumption of innocence and the importance of the notion that it's better to let 10 guilty people go free than to convict one innocent person is that the system is so broken when an innocent person is convicted that uh, we lose faith in the fairness and the efficiency of the system that's designed to protect us. And most importantly, uh, when the innocent person is convicted, the guilty person goes free uh, and is free to commit other crimes. Uh, and so, you know, I understand uh, the psychology of, you know, thinking that where there's smoke, there's fire. But uh, in the criminal justice system, we really need to be paying much more attention to uh, proof uh, than presumptions. And, you know, in Scotland, for example, uh, there are three verdicts uh, that a jury can reach. Uh, a jury can find somebody guilty, they can find somebody not guilty, or they can render a verdict of not proven. And not proven is the equivalent of not guilty. The person goes free. But that's really what the criminal justice system should be focused on, proof. And I think, in reality, uh, our system would be a lot better if jurors were required to find either proven or not proven, uh, because that would focus their attention on what really needs to be decided. Mm -hmm. And you wrote about numerous cases where people were convicted upon very flimsy evidence who also had alibis, and it just seemed incomprehensible that a jury could find them guilty. Well, you know, uh, again, <laughs> jurors are humans uh, and uh, and, you know, prosecutors come in and police officers, at least up to now, have come into court with a sort of veneer of um, respectability uh, and credibility. And, uh, you know, I think that that has led to some uh, instances where their evidence has been given more weight than it should have been given. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, we saw that very clearly in a case that I was involved in that ended up being made a documentary called The Staircase, uh, where the evidence was entirely circumstantial and thin. Uh, and yet the jury convicted uh, based on perjured expert testimony. Uh, and it took us eight years to prove that that expert had committed perjury. The judge eventually found that the expert had committed perjury and our client was was released, but not until he had spent eight years of his life in, in a prison for something he didn't do. Yeah, that reminds me, I was called to jury duty a few years ago and there were a couple of things that really stood out. One was as I looked at the defendant who was sitting in the box with their trial lawyer and police standing around with guns and everything, um, I remember having this distinct feeling of that bias that this person, it's like this whole thing is happening on stage to make the person look guilty. And I, I, be, I became very, very aware of the effect I was having on me and my perspective of the defendant. And then um, they were interviewing us and they were asking us if we, how we, how we would take the testimony of a police officer in the case. And I was kind of shocked that everybody of hundreds of people that went through this that I got to listen to, nobody brought up anything regarding that. And when they came to ask me, I, I said that, well, it seems like there's a potential conflict of interest here because the police represent the state. And they quickly dismissed me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, well, you didn't make it on that jury. So I just I found that experience to be very, very interesting and and also very disturbing how sheep like everybody else was. Absolutely. I couldn't believe that I was the only one who was really questioning what was going on there. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I'm pointing to. Uh, you know, there's this uh, there's this sense that uh, if the police officer's testimony is inconsistent with a civilian witness that the jurors are going to give the benefit of the doubt, if you will, to the police officer. And, and that's a question that is often asked uh, in jury selection. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think people will generally say if they're being honest uh, that, yeah, I, I would tend to believe a police officer over a civilian witness. Uh, there's no reason for that. You're exactly right. You know, the police are there uh, to to prove the case and they're going to shade their testimony, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, towards that end. Uh, you know, just like uh, an alibi witness uh, is there to help the defendant. And so that has to be taken into account. But, you know, I think that may be breaking down somewhat now. Um, I think that that people are beginning to question uh, law enforcement a little bit more than they used to. Now, that may be a temporary trend. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's the sense I get. And there's another thing I'd like to ask you about. It's 
perhaps a little off topic, and that is the principle of jury nullification, because I brought that up. And and of course, during jury selection, the judge states very clearly that we are not to judge the case on our opinion of the law, but just upon um, the evidence. And my understanding is that jury nullification is is an old bedrock of our criminal justice system. It has largely been uh, overshadowed and and pushed out of view in probably in recent decades. But what 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 are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I have ambivalent thoughts about that because just like there could be jury nullification that results in somebody being acquitted, uh, there can be in essence, jury nullification uh, by ignoring the law uh, and finding someone guilty. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important uh, for jurors, for everybody, uh, to respect the rule of law. And I think that what we've seen in our country over the last five years has been a significant erosion uh, of the rule of law on all kinds of levels. Um, you know, starting from the very top and, and working its way down to, to uh, you know, January 6th. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, the real place where jury nullification, if you will, needs to, to happen is at, at the beginning of a case, you know, at the grand jury stage. Uh, and, and I think the problem there is, you know, when, when, a, when people are deciding whether somebody ought to be indicted or not, the problem there is that it's a one-sided presentation. Uh, you know, the defendant doesn't get to, to present any, uh, any evidence at the grand jury stage, uh, and it's completely controlled by the prosecutor. So, uh, you know, I think that the system initially, uh, as designed in the United States, was that the grand jury was going to, in essence, serve as the, as the sort of the nullifier. Uh, you know, they were going to decide whether or not uh, the case ought to even go forward. Uh, but that has totally been eviscerated uh, in modern America. Uh, and grand jurors perform no real screening function at all. Uh, the only time you ever hear of a, of a grand jury not indicting somebody is generally when it's a police officer. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's going on behind the scenes there is that the, the prosecutor uh, has decided he doesn't want that police officer indicted, and he sort of uh, uses the grand jury as 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 the uh, straw man to uh, to make that decision for him. So, uh, you know, I guess that's a long way of answering your question. I, I think I think jury nullification uh, is a dangerous thing uh, at at bottom, uh, and and the problem is that I think oftentimes, in essence, there is jury nullification because the presumption of innocence is nullified uh, by jurors, I think, every day. Uh, and the burden of proof and reasonable doubt is really not enforced the way it should be. And so I think that's a form of jury nullification that really that really undermines the system. An unconscious form of jury nullification. Exactly. Yeah. It, I, I really appreciate your answer. I was actually... You know, when I was preparing for this and I was thinking about 
my old thoughts on jury nullification. I was having strong doubts about it, as you outlined there. So um, let's let's get back to police and prosecutors and and talk about the tremendous power that they have and how difficult it is to hold them accountable for misconduct and abuse of power on their part that often result in long prison sentences or even executions of innocent people? Well, the fundamental problem uh, is that uh, prosecutors have absolute immunity from liability for anything they do as a prosecutor. Uh, and the police have what's called qualified immunity or good faith immunity, uh, where they have immunity for anything they do that is not intentional or willfully wrong. So, uh, you know, because they're cloaked with those forms of immunity, uh, they don't really have to pay a lot of attention to you know, the sorts of things that we as, as human beings uh, going about our everyday lives and our everyday um, jobs have to pay attention to. So, for example, you know, if you're a doctor, uh, you don't have any kind of immunity from liability. Uh, you're, you can be sued for any mistake you make. And, and that the whole theory of that is it, it tends to make people think more and, and be more careful. Uh, and, and so we don't have any problem with that. Uh, yet, for some reason, uh, the courts have decided, because this is a totally judge-made uh, rule, that police officers uh, shouldn't be held to the same standard as all the rest of us. Uh, and, and that, I think, leads to sloppiness and a lack of critical thinking uh, on the part of the police not in, you know, I'm not talking about critical thinking when they're out on the street and faced with a with a serious uh, life-threatening situation. There you have to make snap judgments. I'm talking about when you're conducting an investigation uh, and trying to figure out who did what and why they did it. Uh, that's where sloppiness and, uh, and a lack of thoroughness uh, can really hurt. And, and I just don't see any reason why police officers should be held to any uh, lesser burden than all the rest of us. Same deal with prosecutors. Uh, you know, I'm not absolutely immune from liability based on my decisions as a defense lawyer. Um, why should a prosecutor be absolutely immune for his or her decisions? So, um, you know, that's that's sort of a a fundamental, I think, mistake uh, that the courts have made. The theory is, oh, we don't want prosecutors looking over their shoulder or worrying about whether they're going to be uh, sued if they make the wrong decision. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure that 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 would be a bad thing, to be honest. Uh, and same thing with police officers. Uh, you know, the other piece of it is that litigation is not necessarily the best way to uh, get to the root of what happened and to try to, to deter it in the future. Uh, you know, uh, if a plane crashes, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board comes in and they conduct an investigation to determine what happened and why it happened and how it can be prevented in the future. 
but somebody can be wrongfully convicted and spend literally decades in prison. And when they are exonerated, there's never any equivalent of an NTSB investigation to figure out what went wrong and why it went wrong and how it can be prevented in the future. Uh, and that's that's another piece of the problem that I think uh, people don't don't recognize. And also when somebody's exonerated and and even when there's a like a civil suit against the police, when they do mishandle something, um, the police department, they close ranks around the police and they almost universally deny any wrongdoing. And it's very, very hard to hold police accountable, even for intentional wrongdoing. And, and that's, you know, that's true of many professions. You know, it's difficult to get a doctor to testify in a malpractice case against another doctor. Uh, it, it's sometimes difficult to get a lawyer to testify against another lawyer in a legal malpractice case. Uh, but it's particularly pernicious uh, with law enforcement because so much of what happens is sort of behind the scenes, hidden from view. And so it's very difficult unless people are willing to tell the truth uh, to figure out what happened. You know, I, I guarantee you that uh, but for the video uh, of George Floyd's case, the police would have closed ranks in that case and we never would have heard the truth about what had happened to him. Uh, and I don't know how to combat that. You know, I think I think a lot of it is just peer pressure, a, a desire not to be viewed as a as a snitch, uh, as as disloyal to, you know, your tribe. And, and I don't know. I don't know that that's fixable, to be honest. Uh, I, I think that's just, again, human nature. Uh, and I guess, you know, the only way to really deter that is by making it really costly for somebody to do that uh, when they're caught and to punish that in, in some way that's going to scare people into telling the truth. Other than that, I'm not sure how you combat that. And one of one of the things that uh, police use is something it's you refer to as the trial penalty, which they hold over the heads of potential defendants that they're investigating or during interrogations and the far-reaching effects of that and how police use that to get people to give false confections and plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. Well, here's what, here's what happens, and it's true of police, it's probably more true of prosecutors, but you know, let's take one of the cases in the book. Uh, a young black man from Detroit is charged in rural North Carolina with murdering a person. And, uh, you know, he sits in jail for two years without bond. And uh, what he's facing is an all white jury. It's a death penalty case. And uh, what he's told is that if he's willing to plead guilty, uh, they'll sentence him for uh, manslaughter and he can be out, you know, in 10 years. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if he is uh, going to insist on going to trial, that all-white jury is very likely to convict him and sentence him to death. So, you know, in that situation, uh, and this is a real situation, he ended up pleading 
guilty to the manslaughter, did about eight years. Uh, and then we have a thing in North Carolina called the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission, which is a independent commission that investigates allegations of wrongful convictions. Uh, he was exonerated by a three-judge panel that found that he was actually innocent. And, you know, uh, he was released, but not until he had spent close to a decade in prison. Uh, that's one scenario. The other scenario, which in some ways is, is even more common, is that in the system now, uh, prosecutors have an enormous amount of power when it comes to sentencing. And that's because we have, we have gone to a system of guidelines in sentencing. Uh, it was designed to eliminate disparities, but what it's created is, is draconian systems. Uh, and so by what a prosecutor charges you with and what you plead guilty to, uh, that's going to determine on a grid what your sentence is going to be in large part. Uh, and so judges have have lost a lot of their ability to tailor sentences. And therefore, the prosecutor has sort of stepped into that void and exercises enormous control over that. And so, for example, in the federal system, uh, if you're indicted for a multimillion dollar fraud, uh, you could be sentenced to decades and decades in prison if you're found guilty. Uh, on the other hand, if a prosecutor says to you, well, I'm willing to uh, to let you plead guilty to a conspiracy uh, and not charge you with all the other crimes, uh, then uh, you plead guilty to the conspiracy. The maximum you can face is five years, even if the judge you know, throws the book at you. So what's a person in that situation to do? You know, a business person, a white collar person, an accountant a lawyer, a businessman, you know, even if he's innocent, uh, is he going to roll the dice uh, and go to trial knowing that if he's convicted, uh, he's facing 10, 20, 30 years in prison? Or is he going to plead guilty to the conspiracy and cap his liability at five years? You know, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Mm hmm. And there's an interesting thing that you point out in the book that most people believe that an innocent person would never confess or plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit. Well, right, because they don't understand the pressures that can be brought to bear on people and themselves and how they would react to those pressures. Now, there are people who resist that, you know, and, and God bless them. I mean, you know, uh, there are people who insist on going to trial. Uh, and are willing to roll the dice and come out ahead. So, you know, I'm not saying that everybody ends up giving into these kinds of pressures, but to say I would never plead guilty. Well, let's suppose you're a, a you're a, a poor person who's just getting by. Uh, you have an apartment in a public housing project. You have a couple of kids. You have a, a, a job that's paying you pretty much minimum wage, which is enabling you to scrape by. And now you're charged with, you know, a larceny. And the judge sets bond at $2,500. And you can't make that bond. And you're sitting there in prison, in jail, I should say. You know, I haven't been convicted of anything. 
and you sit and you sit and you sit and uh, you're going to lose your apartment and social services are going to take your kids away and your job is going to disappear and your lawyer comes to you and says, listen, the prosecutor said that if you're willing to plead guilty to petty larceny, you know, it's a misdemeanor, you, he'll agree to time served. In other words, you plead guilty to petty larceny and you get out today. On the other hand, if you continue to insist on your innocence, then uh, we're going to have to go to trial. I can't tell you when that trial is going to take place, uh, but it's going to be months from now. Uh, and you're going to sit here in the meantime. Now, you know, you put that scenario to your average person. I think the average person is going to say, sign me up for the guilty plea. So I think people just don't understand the pressures that can be brought to bear by the criminal justice system that that in essence coerce guilty pleas where where someone really isn't guilty. Mm-hmm. And this book is full of cases of all sorts of police and prosecutorial abuses of power against innocent people. Is there a particular case that you could walk us through that exemplifies what you're trying to share with us? Well, um, you know, I think I think there are two cases on two ends of the spectrum. There's the case of a doctor in Charlotte uh, whose wife was murdered in a brutal fashion. He had an absolute alibi because he was at a hospital starting at 8 a.m. in the morning and going through until he got home to find his wife brutally murdered. Uh, But the police found out that he had been having an affair with a nurse. uh, And that was all they needed to know. Uh, They ignored the obvious suspect who was a handyman who had a crack habit, who had worked at the house before uh, the murder and had been seen on the street the night uh, before the murder, uh, going around to people's houses trying to get money. They completely ignored that person and focused all their attention on the doctor. Uh, They investigated him for four years. Uh, His medical practice was in shambles. Uh, you know, who's going to refer a patient to somebody who's under investigation for brutally murdering his wife? Uh, so his partners ended up asking him to leave the practice. And uh, the police finally got a medical examiner from out of state to come in with an opinion uh, that the time of death of his wife was before 8 a.m. That was the only way they could proceed against him. And once they got that opinion, which turned out to be completely bogus, they convinced the DA to indict him. So four years later, he's indicted. And uh, we were able to point out and establish that the medical evidence was bogus. We were able to establish that the police had hidden from the prosecutor the evidence about this handyman with the crack habit The prosecutor knew nothing about that. The prosecutor knew nothing about the fact that this medical expert was bogus. Uh, And at the end of the day, after essentially a five-year trip through hell, the prosecutor dropped the charges against this doctor, and he, uh, he had to move to another state. So that's an example on one end of the spectrum. And that was simply confirmation bias. You know, that wasn't 
that they were trying to frame an innocent person. Uh, that was simply confirmation bias. The result was horrendous, but it wasn't it wasn't intentional in the sense that uh, they were they were setting out to frame an innocent person. On the other end of the spectrum is is the case of Charles Ray Finch, who was a poor black man in rural North Carolina, who was literally framed for a murder by the local sheriff's department, which was engaged in rampant corruption in the 1970s in rural North Carolina, uh, in Wilson County. Uh, The sheriff was ultimately convicted in federal court of that corruption. But before that happened, uh, a murder was committed. And there's good reason to believe that the person who committed that murder uh, was someone who knew intimately about the details of the police corruption. So in essence, that person had leverage over the police and the police knew it. The sheriff's department knew it. Uh, and if they had charged that person, uh, what he could have done was to try to make a deal uh, to provide evidence against the police in return for lenient treatment on the murder. And so rather than proceeding against that person, uh, the police set up Charles Ray Finch, framed him for the murder, conducted a lineup that was completely uh, geared to making the sole eyewitness identify him. It was a completely suggestive lineup. Uh, The eyewitness identified him. Uh, We believe that the police planted a shotgun shell in his car uh, because the alleged murder weapon was a shotgun. And Charles Ray Finch was convicted based on that evidence. Uh, and spent 42 years in prison before he was finally exonerated and pardoned, given a pardon of innocence by the governor of North Carolina. So those are just two of the stories uh, in the book. Uh, there are many, many others. And, and as you indicated earlier, this is not something that is unique to North Carolina. It happens everywhere. And I'm familiar with these stories in particular because uh, of my experiences there. Uh, But you can talk to lawyers anywhere else in the country and they can recount similar uh, examples of of what is in the book. So what do you think we could do to help overcome some of the flaws and potential abuse of power in the criminal justice system. I mean, are there any any kind of remedial solutions that could make things work better, be more fair? Well, sure. I mean, we're never going to eliminate these things entirely. Um, as I said earlier, it's because the system is run by human beings. But there are certainly things we can do to minimize these circumstances. Uh, You know, for one thing, um, we can train police officers and particularly detectives about the dangers of confirmation bias. You know, when doctors go to medical school, they're taught that when they get out and they're seeing patients, they need to do something that's called a differential diagnosis. And what that means is basically, you know, for every uh, presentation, there may be five or six different causes Uh, or diagnoses that would be possible. And what they are trained to do is to rule out each of those potentials before reaching a diagnosis. Uh, 
That doesn't eliminate misdiagnosis, but it certainly makes it less likely. But that's not how police are trained. They're not trained to, in essence, uh, try to rule out a particular suspect or rule out a particular scenario. And so uh, they're not they're not made aware of their own confirmation bias. They're not made aware of their own implicit biases, uh, which we all suffer from. So, you know, yes, the police get trained in how to handle a firearm and how to take down somebody uh, and how to perform an arrest and a search and issue a warrant. Uh, but they're not trained in these psychological problems that really are at the root of the abuses that we see. So that's one big area that I think we could make improvements in. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the other thing we could be doing is performing the sort of sentinel event reviews, you know, an analysis when somebody is wrongfully convicted, an analysis of what happened why it happened and how to prevent it that's done uh, in other contexts and not as a way of assigning blame, uh, but to do it as a as an exercise in making the system better. And we all have an interest in doing that. And particularly the police and the prosecutors have an interest in doing that, because if you convict the wrong person, the guilty person goes free. And that's not good for anyone. So those are just two suggestions. I'm sure there's many, many others, but we're never going to eliminate it. We have to be working towards minimizing it. Another interesting thing is, could you talk about the basic psychology underlying people's general tendency to follow the rules and trust authorities and not question anything they do and how people in those positions of authority and power have this almost inevitable tendency to exploit that trust. Well, you know, there's an interesting book that I read decades ago when I was just uh, starting college called Escape from Freedom. And it's written by a social psychologist, Eric Frome. It was written in the in the 40s after he got out of Nazi Germany. And the premise of the book, uh, which in part explains uh, fascism, and in part explains religion, is that people are uncomfortable with freedom because freedom involves choices and freedom involves taking responsibility for the choices you make. And uh, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to have to do. Um, and so there's this tendency, uh, and it's hard for me to understand it because uh, I don't suffer from this, uh, but there's this tendency to want somebody to tell them what to do, whether it's a religion that has, you know, certain rules that have to be followed uh, without question, or whether it's uh, a political leader who sets down the rules and, and uh, you just uh, fall in line. And I think that's a very real phenomenon among people. Uh, and I think people do tend uh, to defer to authority figures. Um, and I think that's just, again, one of those things about human nature uh, that we need to recognize and try to resist to the extent we can.
Could you talk a bit more about the work of the various innocence projects and wrongful conviction clinics that are cropping up around the country? And also go more into how difficult it is to overturn a wrongful conviction, making their work quite difficult. Um, you know, innocence projects have have really come into existence over the last 20 years. And and Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld in New York started the first Innocence Project at Cardozo Law School. Uh, and from there, the idea has spread all over the country. And I don't know how many Innocence Projects there are at various law schools, but it, it's certainly in the dozens, if not the hundreds. Uh, and those, those are really essential uh, mechanisms for examining when the justice system goes wrong. Uh, because those students uh, who are supervised by lawyers, you know, professors generally who have practiced law in, in the field, uh, uncover an enormous amount of evidence that is helpful in, in exonerating people. It's a time-consuming process their volunteers, they're getting something out of it in terms of their training. And, and certainly the prisoners are getting a lot out of it in terms of the ability to prove their cases and the resources needed to do that. So they are an incredibly important development. And I think uh, we wouldn't be seeing nearly the number of exonerations that we have seen, uh, but for those clinics. They, they really are the engine that drives most of these most of these exonerations. The reason it's so hard, I think I, I, I addressed a little bit earlier, and that is that, you know, the evidence is often old. Uh, the cases are old. It's hard to find the evidence that leads somebody to be exonerated. You know, it's hard to find the lawyers who are willing to put in the time and the effort. Uh, and And finally, you know, judges and prosecutors want cases to be over. You know, what we hear constantly is, oh, this is going to open the floodgates. You know, if we allow people to, to just get out because they allegedly proved their innocence, um, you know, that's going to open the floodgates. Everybody in prison is going to be alleging that they're innocent and the courts are just going to be inundated with these cases. So we can't do that. Uh, we have to just say enough's enough, finality, you were convicted, your appeal was denied, that's the end of it. Now go serve your sentence. And that's the attitude of, of most judges in our system. Um, and, and so when you put all of those things together, it becomes a Herculean task to exonerate somebody who has been convicted, particularly of a serious crime. And... Uh, that's why the numbers of exonerations are are really just scratching the surface of of the uh, of the depth of the problem. My guest has been David S. Rudolph. He's a preeminent criminal defense and civil rights lawyer and former law professor at the University of North Carolina and Duke University. He's the co-host of the Abuse of Power podcast and the author of this book we've been talking about, American Justice inside stories from the underbelly of the criminal justice system. David, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Antonio, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and, and your listeners. predictions come to pass this year did they know not north africa would they rock but what they know we don't know that's how they keep it from us so i burn the fire from the courts to the cops spiritual wealth is what fills my cups i use this hip-hop to profess my love i am not a pop star i'm a mother of kim fag i'm a fiend for the truth drugs getting lean off a liberty pub you see me they let the wrong one in when they let me in you understand what i'm saying are you hearing me i hear what they're saying with the undertone they're telling me they went to iraq they help and grow they're so arrogant and so obvious the true pours from the ground in fallujah you see me sometimes you need to blaze up a fire let it be known for the record your honor Let the fire blaze in various ways Be it the road, be it the stage The flames stay high The mystified, the mist they fly Tell eyes, put an eye with they tell eye vision Subliminal programs or hold hands in prison Hold hands with the ism that truly ain't him Paint him, taint him, decimate him Reduced to a fraction of flesh and skin We sing, rhythm for the culture Sculpt precisely, devilish encryption Could never subscribe, we Word, power and sound moving the molecule Wonderful, wonderful with many degrees Pepper decree, heat for reason Heat the heathens, pagans flee Cause these streets are paved with thievery False prophets, false hope, false believery Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire Let it be known for the record, your honor Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire Before the case gets settled, your honor Let's form the battalion and stop battling for love of medallions. Covered blood laid up in an ambulance. Can't you see we're just Africans with new garments on but no hearts? Mannequins while Freemasons dance with the Vatican's speech. I'm so tired of imagining. So ready for riots to start happening. You and Obama, I'm not backing him. Sickening, they drop bombs, they sing hymns in church like God's gone. And these devils really think they're gonna win, but they're wrong, car. I stand strong on every song. And pardon what if you don't know I am the unknown man with unknown plans Right in my future with no hands Unplug your mind from the enemies Programs live life with benignity Famalam, stop the killing spree Do you want to make money or history? Cause honestly, hand on my heart No man in power's ever done a thing for me It's not a mystery, it's liberties Blaze up a fire to the victory Go to the judge and the jury They don't know the half of the story Say if I break it down slowly They can really see where I'm coming from I had this mark with why they've come Live it down, I never done When they showed up, I never run Stood firm for the Kanam drum
Rolled around, found an infusionary Foot map, linguistic scanter Helpless in the entity See the cage bird At the bosom of the angry shortfall One finds a fistful All engaging All engaging Perfection's in that non-perfection and I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen, well None of you know my kingdom mania Last chance to retract it Last chance to retract it Why?
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.